0: Hey guys, how's it going? James Hughes here, co-host, producer of the Grinding for Greatness podcast. Today we have an excellent episode lined up for you guys. We have special guest, Kate Permell here. She's everything from a corporate board director, angel investor, and executive coach to executives and board members on businesses that I guarantee you have had a hand in your life. Um, Intel, Google, iHeartMedia, just to name a couple. And what I don't want to do is I don't want to shortchange things a little bit here. So Kate, how's it going? First and foremost, thank you for joining us on this episode.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: And so one thing that I was doing when I was going through looking for guests, um, not only did everything that you've done line up perfectly with who our audience is and what's going on there, but what you're currently doing lines up perfectly for our audience and helping get them to the next level. So... I don't want to shortchange the awesome things that you've done in the past. So let's go ahead in your own words. Let's just get a little bit about um, the the where you've started and then where you've gotten to now.
1: Perfect. Thank you so much. Well, I started out as a mathematician, if you could believe it. I graduated from college uh, with a degree in applied mathematics and went straight into computer programming and the technology field. And one of the things that's really shaped my career trajectory is the fact that I was always the only woman in the room, like always, right? Um, And so I really uh, got a sense of what it's like for those of us who are the onlys to traverse uh, predominantly uh, male or, you know, uh, be be underrepresented in those environments that are predominantly male or white or whatever that is. And so um, a lot of my interest in how people navigate that effectively and how to support them in better navigating those environments came from those early days. Um, I have uh, more recently served as a senior vice president at SanDisk, which is a uh, multi-billion dollar uh, semiconductor company that was merged uh, recently with another larger semiconductor company. And I was also um, a CEO of a joint venture called U3, I've been uh, CEO, COO, or CFO multiple times, and so uh, and and served on two corporate boards. So that's where my career has taken me up to this point. About uh, four or five years ago, I started researching imposter syndrome, because what I was seeing with the men and women I was working with, who tended to be up to underrepresented, is they would show up with less confidence and uh, less presence than some of their, um, you know, sort of traditionally represented peers. And so I wrote a book called Composure, The Art of Executive Presence. And it's all about how to overcome imposter syndrome so that you can show up with confidence and that executive presence that's required to really operate effectively at the highest levels of business.
0: Beautiful. And so that imposter syndrome, that is absolutely something we're going to spend a decent amount of time on later on. Um, I feel like it's something that not only is the, uh, I mean, it affects us obviously in our work field, but there's a lot of spillover that happens in what we take home and then how that carries back over. And it's something that not a lot of people realize is a thing, one, that they have it too, and that the majority of people in the room also have it too. So it's just a systematic of isolation that we bring ourselves into. And so before we get down that avenue, we need to know how you started. So one thing that our audience, I'm sure are dying to find out about, you've made it to some extreme levels, places we all are hoping to get to in our our idea of uh, success, right? So Mm -hmm. a lot of our audience, they are either just about to make that break from that nine to five, putting all their energy towards someone else. And they want to put their time and energy in themselves, or maybe they've already done it and they are just in that breaking point of trying to decide, is this something I can sustain or not? So for you, for example, when Mm -hmm. did you decide that, you know what, maybe, um, maybe I do want to seek some more adversity in my life and try to power through that and grow and scale. What was a little bit of your mindset when that started?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of becoming an entrepreneur, I'll let me focus on that. So um, I was working in a tech company, had two kids um, within two years of each other. And so I really was was longing for more flexibility in my life to be able to uh, be a little bit more present at home, given the demands there. And at that time, there was it was in the uh, late 1990s, and there was a serious shortage of um of, t- of talent. And so companies were having trouble hiring and retaining people. And what that meant was there was a really robust opportunity for consultants. And so I, including in my department, I ran a department and had about 20 people reporting to me. And I, I had five consultants working for me full time because we couldn't simply couldn't, you know, fill the roles that we needed to full time. And I was paying them a lot of money. I was watching those checks and seeing how much I was paying them every month. And I thought, wait a minute, that's what I want to do. And so I left the corporate world and I took some time off just to sort of uh you know regroup and reevaluate, but I ended up becoming an independent contractor and consultant. And that was really my start into entrepreneurism. And from that point, I have never looked back. I mean, really, um the I've always worked with multiple It's sort of a portfolio approach to making money because that's what really serves me the best. So um, and it typically looks like doing some consulting type work for companies, doing executive coaching. I probably have, you know, I actively coach between five and 10 executives or senior leaders who are becoming executives on a monthly basis. And then I also started to serve on corporate boards. And so there was an, another um, a, a opportunity there for income and equity. Um, and then I go in and out of taking jobs. I'm, uh, I'm in right now taking an interim COO role for a company that's focused on placing um, under those who are traditionally underrepresented in the boardroom into the boardroom. And so that's my current focus. And that is a, an interim part-time COO role.
0: Talk about didn't slow down, didn't turn back once you started picking up there. And I guarantee you that's something that's striking a chord with just about every one of our listeners listeners right now. You identify that, hey, why can't that be me? Hey, I can take the power within myself. And then we're able to grab that. And like you said, not let go. So with that, as you were um starting to, to venture out into we'll call it the wild on your own in that sense. Um, what was, we'll say some of the first pitfalls that you found that you were not expecting. And then what was something from those pitfalls that you've been able to almost weaponize as a point to help your growth process? Because it's a problem I'm sure that's going to keep coming up again and up again. You turned it into a strength instead of a weakness.
1: Well, I, the way I approached it was, um, I mean, it was sort of an all or nothing thing when I left and there was huge demand and I lined up my consulting opportunities before I ever left. So I really kind of set myself up for an easy entry into that entrepreneurial consulting world. I think the next inflection point, though, was a little different. And that's where I decided to move from being a strategy consultant or interim executive to doing executive coaching. And the way that came about was I was asked to come and do a workshop or, or sorry, I speak to a group of independent consultants about sales. I'm not a sales expert per se, but when you run your own business and you run companies, you you learn a lot about sales. And so I spoke to them about that and I realized there was this huge need to do for them to have some sort of ongoing training because individuals that go out in the world and try to sell that don't have traditional sales skills, they don't necessarily understand the systems and how to do it and, and how to move things forward and how to keep sales cycles short and how to close deals, you know? And so I ended up uh, creating this boot camp, and um, it was a, it was a group effectively group coaching around sales. And I fell in love with coaching. So I made this decision that I wanted to spend much, much more of my time coaching and much less of my time operating or being a strategic consultant. And that's where I really created this inflection point in my business. So what I decided to do was to look at every opportunity that came to me it was easy for me to see the strategic consulting opportunity, but it wasn't easy for me necessarily to see the coaching. So I would start to really inquire around that and see if I could turn these opportunities from consulting opportunities into coaching opportunities. And slowly over time, you know, I didn't like drop my whole consulting business to start coaching. I just started to take on more and more coaching and do less and less consulting until pretty soon that became the dominant, uh, way I, I made money. So, um, and I think that like any, any kind of, um, professional services businesses, one of the hard things about that is you're constantly doing business development.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: I love working in projects that last three, six, nine, twelve 12 months. Sometimes stuff is more transactional than that. And in the last year, the last six months I've had had big contracts with some of the largest tech companies uh, last year that were expected to go and launch into multiple new contracts this year. And because of the layoffs and the economic tightening, they didn't. So I started the year with almost nothing in my pipeline, which hasn't happened to me in a really long time. And I think that's the thing that's most unnerving uh, for most of the people I work with and I coach who are entrepreneurs is it's that – that uh, having to start from scratch and not know where your next income is going to come from. And mm-hmm. uh, it's challenging. And I think that the opportunity there is to really build um, pipeline building and networking as a common thread that you carry all the way throughout your business so that if you do find yourself in that position, you don't have to restart your network from hold. You know, You've basically got a warm network that you can jump back into and engage with.
0: Exactly. Not just not just being mindful for opportunity when they present themselves, but on the back burner, staging those opportunities to possibly be available long term. Also, Um, Mm -hmm. something that we talk about quite a bit. And so once again, beautiful that you were able to see that transition and then able to implement it in time as it goes. And I'm sure that's something, again, every single one of our entrepreneurial um, uh, audience members are very familiar with is that that fear of cash flow, that fear of pipeline and that fear of, uh, you know, are you on, are you in that red line or not? Or are you able to kind of start to break through and start to uh, materialize something a little bit bigger? So no matter what scale you're on, you have that, you have those stresses.
1: Yeah. And what I, what I found with the people I coach, what I typically recommend is that they make three network contacts a week, three, that's it. And every week they do that. And that by that, it means queuing up a network contact. So picking up the phone and calling somebody, sending them an email and scheduling a, a try, asking them if they're willing to schedule a coffee meeting or something. Um, and that's a really great way to keep that network going. Another thing I advise and recommend that works really well and is a huge relief for people is come up with reasons to call people, to get advice about something, to run an idea by them and get their feedback on it. Don't just make it a, Hey, we have coffee with me. Say, you know what? I've got this new um, concept I'm working on. I'd really love your feedback since you're so expert in this area. I know you'll give me great feedback. I'm wondering if you have 15 minutes to take a call with me on that. It's a much easier and more comfortable ask. I think for both sides, if you can actually create a, an intention around the time you're spending together.
0: Yeah. I mean, they always say, what, what is it? 90% of success is showing up. Well, You got to do more than just show up. While you're there, you might as well make it worth your time and go ahead and put that energy into it. So if you're going to have that coffee, that opportunity is not going to create itself. You are going to have to have that conversation. You are going to have to begin that networking process. And then over time, that seed that you planted can grow into a much bigger opportunity that you can basically you get the shade or the fruit from that you're looking for. So it sounds like as you're hitting, um, I, I would say a thousand miles per hour, but it sounds like we're hitting even faster than that. So as you're hitting Mach three in your career life right now, and you're really gearing up, you're starting to scale faster and faster. I'm sure there was a huge, um, point of emphasis in balancing that personal life and that work life. I know you talked about that two under two, um, two kids under, um, two years old. And that right there is a huge amount of pressure and that's A huge amount of responsibility for a parent, let alone a woman in this workplace trying to become the head of what you're doing. So talk a little bit about not only the struggles there, the balances that you found, and then ultimately the things that you were able to set in place to create long-term balance.
1: Yeah, this is a topic I deal with all the time. I coach uh, probably 80% female executives, and this is a huge issue for them. Um, And so uh, the most important thing about this is is it's all about personal boundaries. It's about what you are willing to do and say yes to and what you're not willing to do and say no to. And I have a whole chapter in my book, Composure, The Art of Executive Presence, called Badass Boundaries. And it's all about establishing boundaries. And so here's the deal. When you are working for someone else or you're working for clients, when requests are made of you that exceed your capacity, you need to negotiate those requests. And it's not, and I think uh, a lot of the uh, people I work with feel as though when requests come in, they're absolute. And they need to say yes in order to be a good valued employee. But what I find is that if you, if they are clear about their priorities and they're communicating that regularly, you know these are my top five priorities this week. When a request comes in, they can assess it against those priorities and then go to their manager or executive they're working for and say look here are my priorities and this request came in you know it feels to me like it's outside of that but if it's really important i can move one of these priorities around here's what i recommend um, so it's a way to dis- it's a way to say i'll take care of this urgent request but i need to uh let something else push out a little bit. So, I and, and I, I always recommend people operate at 70% capacity. They plan for 70% capacity, because when you're working, those requests do come in and things take longer and things come up. And if you're operating at 100% or to ten percent capacity, you'll get overwhelmed immediately, right? So if you plan your, your, your throughput at 70%, it leaves room so when those requests come in, you don't have to say no. And that's really, it's just so important because ultimately the balance comes in having a, a manageable work life so that you can come home and have energy and time for your home life or other activities, friends, sports, whatever it is you do.
0: It seems like this is a a leading cause to what everyone calls burnout in that sense of if you're operating at hundred percent nonstop, you know, I always talk about in, in the creative field, um, I teach a a photography uh, class at the the local college here. And the one thing that I tell them all the time, it's video production. But the thing that I tell them all the time is pre-plan as much as you can, the technical aspects of things, because things are always going to go wrong in the field. It's always going to happen. And you need to have as much of yourself available for creative energy and for creative space. And if you're constantly problem solving technical issues from a lack of foresight, you're not going to have time to be creative and that creative energy is not going to be able to be fully executed because the technical part isn't going to sustain it. So you have to be able to leave yourself open for basically, oh shit scenarios to develop when they happen and give yourself uh, basically a reserve of energy to be able to handle that when that comes so you're not being completely derailed. And so-
1: That's so true. That's so true for creatives. It's actually true, I think, and also for all of us. Mm-hmm. It's something a concept I call white space. You need to leave white space in your head so that you can use it to plan and think and all of that. Um, I have a really great podcast. It's a brain hack. I do a brain hack series on the on my podcast on composurethebook.com, and this what this one's about making space for your creative self. How do you how do you create spaciousness for that creative part of yourself that's so vital? To your own ability to to be energized and you know thoughtful and all of that, it's a great little brain hack.
0: That sounds yeah, that sounds wonderful. It's something I'm probably going to check out right after here too. I advise everyone else does also, or everyone else should also. And then one thing to go with that too, talking about those personal boundaries again, <laughs> going right back into that creative space. That's one thing that. I know, I know when you first start out, there's the idea that you need to take everything you can get to build that experience and to then be able to go from there. But if you aren't at that capacity of being able to take in all the work that you're trying to get, if you aren't at the capacity to be able to execute to the, basically to your, um, I want to say guest, I've worked in customer service, but not your guest, but your client. Um, if you're not able to reach their capacity of what they're expecting you're just setting everybody up for failure. You're setting yourself up to not have the confidence moving forward because in the, the developmental part of your game, you're already overwhelmed and you're already coming up short. And so you can't just take whatever comes along. I've been there. I've taken just anything that can come along and I've made promises way too high of what I could execute and thought when the job comes, I can jump up and be able to reach it. And of course you don't. So like, to prevent that lack of confidence and to prevent the burnout of just taking in everything that comes, you have to understand yourself, your power, your ability, and know how you can apply that, um, efficiently also just because you're working hard doesn't mean you're working smart. And so you can do both and, and get a lot more done. So So yeah, with that, so let's say someone's not setting up, um, the, the, these gridlocks to, to prevent themselves from, Um, going down the wrong rabbit hole. So they're taking in everything they can. They're starting to get burnout. They're jumping constantly um, up in scale or trying to just take on anything that can come and they lose themselves. Mm -hmm. A little bit about imposter syndrome. So let's talk about that and transition into there. So you've just gotten that new position Um, for the audience that may or may not understand exactly what imposter syndrome is. We talked about it for a very, very brief amount um, on an episode with um, Michael Seeley that released not too long ago. But we didn't go into a huge amount of detail. We talked about the foundation of it. It can basically stem from, you know, you're looking to survival. You don't want to be out in the Savannah by yourself hunting. You want to have the, the security of the tribe. And we just kind of familiarized everyone with there, but there's so much more to it. And let's take the time a little bit and, and discuss a little bit more because I know you wrote the book on it. So you are you are ready to, to talk about it here.
1: Yeah, so imposter syndrome, what we w- way we define it is when individuals feel that they're less competent than others perceive them to be. So they have a perception of themselves as being less competent or capable than they really are effectively. Um, and there are five behaviors that are like the fingerprint behaviors for imposter syndrome perfectionism, feeling like a fraud, um, rejection sensitivity or fear of failure, depressed entitlement, and a lack of confidence. So those are the the five behaviors that we see. And on my website, composurethebook.com, there's a free assessment you can take to determine whether you uh, have these imposter behaviors. And it'll give you kind of a rating across each of the behaviors. Um, So that's what we define imposter syndrome to be. And when people are, so one of the challenges of being an entrepreneur, it's not just about feeling like an imposter or lacking confidence. There's also an element of trust that's necessary to be able to believe that you're going to have business if you turn business down, right? I mm-hmm. think the biggest reason people take on business that they shouldn't take on, maybe it's a client that won't pay you your going rate, or maybe it's a um, something where you just have this feeling this is not going to go well. You know, you always know it, right? When you take on those projects you shouldn't take on, they almost always go south pretty quickly, and I know for sure the clients that push me on my rate and if I ever discount my rate, which I don't do anymore, they're always the toughest clients I take on. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in the, but the problem is that when you don't have a full book of business or you don't know when your next client's going to come, where they're going to come from, um, you you don't necessarily feel safe turning anything down, right? And that what that does is it creates zero space for new things to come in. You know, I have a very strong belief that by saying no to things that aren't for you, you create an openness and you send a message to the universe that you're waiting and willing and you're here for the things that are right for you. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that takes a lot of trust. And I think that's one of the things that people struggle with sort of early in their uh, entrepreneurial lives.
0: One thing that, um, I was fortunate. I took, um, this uh, photography class. And it was a little bit of a business aspect to it too. One thing that our professor at the time told us that really just kind of hit home. Um, So in photography, you can do what, ten dollars sessions, make $1,000, or you can do one $1,000 session and do it that. Now, How many $100 sessions are you going to have to turn down before you get that $1,000? But once you get that thousand and people accept that you are that thousand, look at how many more thousands you can get with so much less work. And so you have to understand that ability of who you are, your ability, where you can grow, where you can scale and look for those opportunities and know that, you know, working hard doesn't mean necessarily that you're doing it right.
1: Yeah. And when I was in the corporate world, I bought millions and millions of dollars worth of services And there were often times when my favorites or my leading candidate for a service uh, when I was looking at multiple vendors came in significantly lower price than the other ones. And it actually scared me. I thought, is there something wrong with this? Because the other two are in line and they're higher price. So you can, you know, being the best price does not always create the best opportunity for closing business.
0: Exactly. We actually we actually just had a podcast talking about if you if times are perfect and times are good and you're constantly pricing high, well when times go low that word of mouth marketing is going to work against you because everyone knows you're too expensive for the current times. And if you're not fluctuating with prices and you know keeping your thumb on the pulse and everything, so yeah, you have to be you have to be aware. So mm-hmm. let's say what that imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm it's starting to develop or you may not realize it, but what are some, some day-to-day, uh, we'll say activities or day-to-day actions of someone who's currently under, um, uh, under that mindset that may not realize they're under it, but are telltale signs that they are.
1: Yeah, so what's interesting about imposter syndrome is it's situational. You can be very, very confident in one situation and then move into another situation and feel not at all confident. So a great example, classic example of that is uh, something like public speaking, right? If you're meeting with a group of people, you're presenting your ideas, and it's a group that you know, and they're your peers, it's one thing, but bringing that into the boardroom or presenting in front of investors is a totally different thing. And um, I hear this a lot. It has to do with people's perception that they'll be asked a question they don't know the answer to or somebody will bring something up they hadn't thought of you know that they'll be caught off guard because they they hadn't thought through everything and come up with all the answers and so it's that sort of they over prep they over prepare and they overwork and they burn themselves out before they even walk in the door because they're so worried about it plus they're nervous when they walk in the door and when you walk in the door and you're on high alert scanning the room to see if anybody's going to give you negative feedback or criticize you or, you know, poke a hole in your story or something, that's a lot of energy that's going out to try to, you know, stay safe and stay on high alert. So, um, you know, what we do is we do, there's some brain hacks for this that are really helpful, but um, one of the most important things is to to look at the situation from a higher perspective. Um, so, for example, if I'm going to go present... Uh, to an investor or to an executive team and try to try to get something funded or get my project approved Um, it, what's in the highest and best good for everybody in the room for me for the investor or the executive team and for the company is that I'm effective at conveying the value that I can bring to the table and that we have a really um, a dynamic and effective discussion right and and I think from a higher perspective, you can see that n- you're not expected to know everything, but you're expected to be responsive to questions and requests that are made in the room. And what that can look like is something like, you know what, that is such a great question. We worked really hard to consider that and we didn't we didn't take a look at it from that angle. I'd like to hear a little bit more about your thoughts, but then the team and I will go back and come back with a response on that for you by noon tomorrow.
0: It's amazing how much, people do business with people, how much human allowance we're able to give other people and how sometimes, you know, I I say this all the time. Like if you don't know the answer, obviously the the best policy is that honesty in the sense that if I can reveal to you that I'm humble enough or that I'm honest enough to say that I don't know the answer and you see my follow through by coming back with an answer later on, that's going to speak volumes more um yeah. me and the, uh, the the department head at the photography program had the exact same conversation um mm-hmm. when a student comes and asks you a question you may not have the answer to they respond so much better and so much clearer and so with much more respect when you're open and honest in a position of power and then come back to it too and so um
1: yeah and uh, to that i think uh when you make a mistake when you something goes wrong you also are given an opportunity to repair and to uh, make it better. And I don't know if you've had the experience of going into a restaurant. And we did did this with my mother-in-law, 14 of us. They took more than an hour to get our food. And it was horrific. It was just like, it was a horrific meal. The manager came up and not only did they comp the entire meal, but they gave us a $300 certificate to come back some other time because they really valued the business and they wanted us to be, we we were long-term customers for that restaurant. That made such a it that's one of my favorite restaurants because of the way that was handled. So just like you're saying, if you're open and clear that you don't know the answer, but you'll come back, it gives you an opportunity to demonstrate something that you wouldn't have otherwise demonstrated. Same thing is true for how you handle adversity or challenges in a relationship.
0: And so you mentioned a second ago, um, I think with imposter syndrome that you know, people who maybe just be learning about the situational mindset is how you said you can be high in one spot and you can be low in the others necessarily. So how would you say that that area that you're low in people may not identify it as affecting their high end the area where they are overly confident in how are the two relating to each other and how ultimately as a person, is it holding you back?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that it's important to be aware of when you tend to lose confidence or feel concerned about feedback and criticism. What are the dynamics and the situations that do that? Because it's possible to to stabilize yourself and to, to be able to be less triggered By those things. And my book goes through that extensively how to do that. Um, And I think when you're overly confident, it's also helpful to have an awareness that others around you may be experiencing those things that you experience in the situations where you're not confident. You know, we have an article on the um, couple articles that are relevant on my website, uh, which is one is about um, how to give feedback that doesn't trigger the imposter. You know, recognizing that someone's people are usually really sensitive to feedback, even if it's constructive feedback. And so there's ways to give it to especially people who are sensitive about that, that makes it easier for them to hear that. Another is how to how to um, how to have a meeting that doesn't trigger imposters. Right. Because a lot of times people get triggered in meetings and there are introverted people or people that don't feel confident who never speak up and there are really generous and beautiful ways that you can incorporate those around you who may be feeling that way when you're feeling confident when you're comfortable and one of the most simple ways is just by saying you know i'm really curious what jane has to say about this because last time jane had a really interesting comment about this Um, so jane do you have any thoughts on this and just invite those who are the quieter ones around the room to speak up or have a rule where that's how we do it. We allow the quieter ones to speak up first and then the louder ones can speak up later.
0: And you know, it's almost a challenge for the louder ones to uh, pump the brakes a little bit. Just go ahead and take in a little more information that may actually change your output and then and then put it out. So yeah, the inclusion seemed like those, the big keyword uh, of what you were talking about there and getting yes. everyone involved. And again, just going back to people doing business with people amazing how the emotions you're feeling as a human, another human in the room could be feeling the same thing. And so just like that, you're two isolated humans who are feeling all of this anxiety completely manifested uh, manifested by fabricated ideas that you have of each other. That again, is just going to put a block on any kind of growing in a, a not so not so positive way. Yeah. So I- and
1: and not you made a very important point earlier. You said uh, something about um, not realizing that other people have the same feelings and feeling isolated. This is one of the, the most important things that happens when we hold workshops on imposter syndrome with groups, particularly if they're mixed groups of men and women, senior versus uh, more junior people, because when what, what everyone discovers is that everybody in the room experiences it. Even the most senior male in the room who's a C-level executive, will have times or moments where they experience it. So it what happens is people feel like they're not alone. And that is a really big deal because it, typically when we are experiencing imposter syndrome, we think there's something wrong with us and that's why we're doing it. But once you sit in a room and recognize that everybody has that experience, you can begin to realize there's nothing wrong with me. These are really common experiences and feelings and there's something you can do about it.
0: Yeah. And then you kind of have that, I don't want to say necessarily that bonding aspect of it, but then you can start working together as a team to doing things bigger than any one individual can do because you have a bunch of group of individuals acting as one organism. The isolation is going to keep you broken down and separated from doing any kind of work, whether it's creative or not doing something bigger than what you could actually be doing as a team. That's right. And I'm sure that obviously just carries to the home life too, if, if necessarily you're, you're, you know, having to overcompensate at home because of your lack of confidence at work, you know, it's going to go hand in hand and mm-hmm. just ultimately bring you down as a whole. Mm-hmm. So what's next for you, Kate? I know right now we're talking about the, uh, the consulting and we're wanting to, uh, make more of a transition there. Where do you see, uh, going next? Because we're at Mach three right now. Um, I don't know if Mach six is, is in your, your scale or at some point you're wanting to maybe break the sound barrier only or, or what we will have going on.
1: well, I really have three things I focus on at this stage of my life. And again, it's a very blended model too. Uh, it's, it's that portfolio approach to making a living and to having a compelling work. So one thing is serving on boards. Um, I really enjoy serving on corporate boards. My last board, um, uh, both of them have been acquired or had an M&A transaction so I'm in actually looking for a new board opportunity right now. Um the second thing is my executive coaching. I will always do that because it's really um joyful and rewarding for me. And then the third is I'm operating uh the company I'm operating with is is focused on getting women and those who are traditionally underrepresented on boards and I just fundamentally believe that our world will be a better place if the balance of power is more evenly distributed than it is right now. So that's why I'm passionate about that. I've been passionate about that since I was probably 13 years old. And it's been a thread throughout my entire life. So um, I'm going to keep doing that because that's I think the reason I was put on this planet was to make an impact in that realm.
0: Um, so as you're making that impact and as people want to find out more about you or be a part of your movement and be a part of the impact that you're trying to give back, where can they reach you? Where can they find um, all the books that you've talked about that now I want to buy and and dive into? um, Where can they get a hold of you? So
1: I have a LinkedIn profile. You can just look up Kate Permal on LinkedIn. That's my primary social media presence. I also have a website called composurethebook.com. Bunch of free resources on there. There's uh, there's a bunch of articles and podcasts, including those brain hacks I was talking about. Um, but then also the book itself has a free companion workbook. So if you want to have the experience that those who go through our, our uh, three month workshops go through on your own or with a group of people that you want to do this with in a, in a in a book club or something, that's free and available to you on the website. Um, So that's the best way. And I'm and I'm always welcome uh, people reaching out to me and contacting me. You could do so on LinkedIn or uh, from my website.
0: All right. That sounds perfect. You guys hear it there. And then for this episode, you know, you can catch us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, everywhere, everywhere you can possibly podcast, anywhere you can possibly consume content. You can find us here. You can find us there. We're looking forward to hearing from you guys. Reach out if you have any questions. Let us know uh, what you want to hear from next. And we're looking forward to it next time. See you later, guys.